0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صلِّ وسلِّم وبارِك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتيح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها وَلَا حَبَّةٍ فِي ظُلُمَاتِ الْأَرْضِ وَلَا رَطْبٍ وَلَا يَابِسٍ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مُبِينٍ Inshallah, in today's class, I want to talk about the background of the seerah, which is the ancient world that serves as a direct background to the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is not meant to be a very sophisticated class in antiquity, but we should know a little bit about the areas, the four main areas that occupy the Seerah. The first is the Eastern Roman Empire or what we refer to as the Byzantine Empire. The second is the Persian Empire. The third is is the Aksumite Empire, the Empire of of Al-Habash of Abyssinia. And of course, ancient Arabia. So I'll talk a little bit about all of those, and hopefully, we'll get to the point that we uh, can conclude with uh, Ismail alayhis salam and the formation of Mecca as a hub. That that's sort of what I want to accomplish uh, for today, and then next time, inshallah, we'll we'll begin with the the milad, the birth of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So first, the Byzantine Empire. Now, the Roman Empire. Uh, was a very massive, uh, was a very massive landmass, and the Western Empire collapsed before the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, and I'm not going to talk much about that, other than to reference that there is a, a very wonderful uh, six-volume book that discusses that whole episode called "The Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire" by Edward Gibbon. A uh, famous British uh, scholar, and you can get into the details of all of that. But what concerns us is that in the year three thirty-seven of the Christian calendar or the Common Calendar, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity on his deathbed, and by that conversion, or near his death, there are different uh, uh, narrations of that story. But you know, near the end of his life, and as a result of that conversion, the eastern part of the Roman Empire became Christian. So up until that point, for several hundred years, Christianity was really the underdog, and very much persecuted, and very much splintered. So by Constantine becoming Christian, and by establishing Constantinople, which as we know today is Istanbul, uh, as a new capital, there is now state support for Christianity and the nature of this empire, the the Roman Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, all of those words would be interchangeable, begins to shift towards Christianity. In the very early years, the conversion to Christianity was linked almost with an animosity towards antiquity. So when somebody converted to Christianity in the very early years, before the establishment of the, you know, the uh, Eastern Roman Empire and its, its link with Christianity, one is almost rejecting antiquity, rejecting uh, large aspects of Greek thought, Roman thought, uh, philosophy, etc., which was very different, as w- what we know happened when Islam encountered these type of, uh, or, or these bodies of knowledge of sciences and studies and books, etc. Because they linked this with paganism, and their rejection of these, uh, of the past of, of their of their own past or antiquity was their understanding as a rejection of paganism, and of course before Constantine converted, this was considered like a fifth column you know you are going against the whole grain of society at that time and that's why there was this heavy persecution of christians at this time in addition to the fact that christians themselves were very much splintered there were there were multiple churches and that had different creeds all throughout what at that time was the was the christian world And those churches and those theological differences meant that those Christian churches fought each other. So they were persecuted by the greater community, or the greater society, and they themselves would fight one another. And as a result, they were always seeking some kind of link with political power to give them a firmer footing. So these are just some themes that are important. I mean, I'm not going into any detail, but they're important to know these themes. And I'll make my point clear why I think it's important as a segue into the discussion of the Sira, One of the results of Constantine converting to Christianity is that there was a grafting of Christian Christianity onto pagan themes, times, dates, locations, etc. So the establishment, for example, of Christmas, as an example, that date in December or in the Eastern Church, they celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January. That is because at that time, that was a pagan holiday. It was, a, I don't know, the celebration of Apollo or something like that. So the thinking was, well, everyone's gathered on this day, so rather than do the pagan holiday, we'll do the Christian holiday. So there was a lot of grafting. And with that grafting, there comes sometimes a little bit of confusion of, well, what's, is this Christian or is this pagan? And, and these wavelengths start to you know, combat and then therefore need to be reconciled. So for the next several hundred years, there's a, a larger attempt within the Christian world to reconcile a lot of Christianity with ant- antiquity or pagan thought, philosophy, etc. And then the last thing to say about the Byzantine Empire is that of course their archenemy was the Persian Empire. So there was a lot of fighting and war and conflict between the two. That being said, by the time of the establishment of the Eastern Roman Empire, we are already talking about the decline past the fall of the Western Roman Empire and also in decline of the Eastern Roman Empire. So, at the advent of Islam, at the birth of the Prophet wasallam, that's what the Byzantine Empire looked like. And... The reason it's important other than the fact that the prophet saw himself ends up corresponding with them directly is that the Romans were interested in Arabia and when I talk about Arabia we'll talk about what that means but but only the northern part which we refer to today as the Levant Damascus, Amman, Jerusalem, those areas. They they didn't really care, they didn't really care for what was in the middle part of Arabia. I'll get to that in a second. Next is the Persian Empire. Also large and in decline like the Byzantine Empire at this time. But they had more of a presence in Arabia than the Byzantians. So on the east and also in the south in Yemen. This is a, uh, a, a, a battleground between both the Persians and the Abyssinians or the Axumite Empire. And it, this will be important when we come to talk about Abraha and things like that Well, How did Abraha who is uh, Abyssinian end up in Yemen uh, And things like that But their conflict is fighting in the southern part of Arabia And again the south of Arabia is of international interest for a couple of reasons One it's geography that it's, it's just across the sea from Ethiopia So the Axumite empire will try to acquire that as part of it uh, as, as well as the mainland of Africa. And in the south of Arabia and in the uh, outer parts where current-day Oman is, that's where we have frankincense. And frankincense uh, was a ha- highly coveted commodity. And that's why in the ancient world they referred to Arabia as Arabia Felix, or the radiant Arabia because of these aspects but notice how no one cared or very little people cared for central arabia and that's not by accident i mean for us we say subhanallah but that's you know a fact they're very much occupied in the north by the romans in the south there's a tension between the persians and the abyssinians but you know the area that we that we are going to talk about most of the time mecca medina of these areas you know not not so much interest and concern Unlike the Byzantine Empire, in the Persian Empire there was more of a religious diversity. So there was Zoroastrianism, of course, to be sure, as the official or more popular religion. Mazdachism, which, which I guess to use our language we would say is a Zoroastrian bidah, but a, a, a branch out of Zoroastrianism that was an issue at that time uh, that we're discussing. Christianity. So some of the Persians were Christians and there were minor Jewish communities uh, in, in the Persian Empire, just like there were Jews in the Roman Empire, of course. But their treatment in uh, Persia was, was much different than their treatment in, in Europe at, at this time. The Axumite Empire, the, the Abyssinian Empire, the third sort of background or backdrop to the Sirah, is that the Axumites invaded Yemen in the year 520 to fight against a Jewish king, a Jewish Yemeni king, uh, Dhul Nawas, who persecuted Christians and killed them. This is the story of Surah Al-Buruj, Ashab al This is the story of Ashab al And And just as a uh, disclaimer, because we're recording this, I'm not making any essential comments that all Christians are like this and all Jews are like that because people they like to misunder they have a people are have a it's like a sport now they, they they excel at misunderstanding what people say. So this is, I'm just we're just talking about history. So we're not saying all Jews are like this or all Christians are like that. We're simply trying to arrive at a more accurate understanding of the sirah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So there was this Yemeni king who became Jewish, Dhul-Nawas, and he was uh Fervent in his belief, and part of his that that excitement is that he was, you know, wanted everyone to believe. These Christians didn't want to believe, so he built this big ditch and he threw them in them and he killed them. So the Abyssinians, who are Christian, uh, were and are Christian, uh, were upset. So they wanted to avenge this. So they invade Yemen. This was in 520. Five years later, in 525, Abraha. Who was a general in this army? He becomes in charge of Yemen and he began his Christian propaganda. So, one of Abraha's big issues, you know, his uh, main thing is why is everyone in Arabia going to this uh, city called Mecca and this thing called the Kaaba? You know, they need to come to my big church. So, he built this, you know, massive, like what we would call like mega church or mega cathedral. In, in the south of Arabia, and he wanted people to come and perform pilgrimage to the church. And then the Arabs of Mecca at the time, they, they, they traveled south and they defiled the church, as we know from the story. So Abraha got very upset. So he said, I'm going to march and I'm going to try to destroy the Kaaba. And we'll talk about that. Surah Al-Feel uh, for the Quranic reference. The Axumite control in Yemen lasted about 72 years until the Persians regained it. So the story of Abraha uh, and the and the, the, the chapter of al-Feel this happens about 40 or 50 days before the birth of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So and the Prophet Sa'sim lived for 63 years. So right after the Prophet Sa'sim's passing is is when the Persian influence returned to Yemen. So that becomes important for later in Islamic history, were we to go beyond the life of the Prophet wasallam. Ancient Arabia. So we can think of ancient Arabia geog- geographically of, as having three parts. The Levant, which would be current today, Syria, Jordan, uh, Palestine, Israel, this area. And I mean no politics by these words, I'm just describing so people have a visual reference. Central Arabia, which is the main uh, backdrop for the seerah of the Prophet Wasallam, And then the outer rim. These are just my, my words. So Yemen, Oman, those areas today. In the Levant, the Arabs that lived in the Levant, their loyalty waxed and waned between the Byzantians and the Persians. And this was a function of several factors. One of them is that they performed no military service. So when you don't perform military service, you know your uh, belonging to that community is very different than if you fight in the army. Which is why, when we as a you know just a foreshadow, when we talk about the Muslims living in Abyssinia during the the first Hijra of the Muslims, the Muslims in Abyssinia fought with the Najeshi against his enemy. And that's a huge lesson for us, because that means that they believed and they interpreted that this was their homeland. And after the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina, many of those Muslims in Abyssinia never went to Medina, they still lived there. And if you go to those parts of northern Ethiopia today, there are Muslim graves that go back, that are Sahaba, that go back to the first generation of Islam. So military service is a big deal. So There was no military service in either the Persian or or the Byzantine Empire. There was excessive taxation. And there was religious persecution. So these places, the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, Persian Empire, if you're not one of those old established faiths, even if you were some of those old established faiths, you were persecuted. That was very common. Religious persecution was, was almost normal at that time this is to say that the jews the arabs of syria the egyptians tended at that time to welcome the persian over the roman so if there was a you know toss up between the two they would incline to the persians who were a little bit more sort of eclectic in that regard but when the arab muslims came you we we, we can now understand why islam was welcomed in these places and why this understanding of Islam you know, spread by the sword, those type of uh, n- not accurate and not true statements really don't have any legs to stand, stand on. So for our backdrop, Northern Arabia primarily is under the Byzantium influence. Southern Arabia is between Ethiopia and then Persian. But Central Arabia was left untouched and almost forgotten. And this brings us to you know the Arabs and their origin, but before I do that, I just want to make a, a modern-day reference, which is there's a wonderful book by Clayton uh, Christensen called The Inventor's Dilemma. And in this book, and and he's a you know very popular you know business writer and he talks about business trends. And in the book, the whole book is based on this idea of why some companies or some technologies come and disrupt disrupt industries. So you no. Know, an entire industry is moving this way And then somebody augments a technology Or invents a new technology And it takes the whole industry that way And if, if those companies that are well and established Can't adapt Then they're gone So for our generation A very easy example is blockbusters Versus you know Netflix we, we all remember when we all went to blockbuster it, every, there was a blo- That's what you did And then this funny company said Oh we're going to do something different and everyone laughed at them. And then Blockbuster went out of business. And Netflix took over. Because they slightly altered the way that we access movies. And, and now that we stream and things like that. If you can understand that concept. Then you can understand how disruptive Islam was. Compared to all of these things that we just mentioned. Excessive taxation. Religious persecution. And one of Islam's main. And I know this example will only go so far. So I'm not going to try to overextend it. But one of Islam's main technologies that was disruptive and still remains disruptive is the language of the religion itself, is the Arabic language and the power of the Qur'an. Now I don't want to spend too much time because it's not a class on the history of the Qur'an, but that's the technology that altered a lot. The, the Qur'an and the revelation of the Qur'an established the way that the Arabic language was written even though it was written at this time and there were Sahaba that could read and write and the like even the grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu is said to have, uh, in history, in our own history, that there was a like a legal contract, a trade contract that he had signed, Abdul Muttalib, and it was inside the Kaaba, and this lasted, and there were all of the second and third Islamic century saw this, the the Prophet's grandfather's you know handwritten you know document, uh, you know then it got lost throughout time. So even though that existed, the Quran now of course it's not a Subversive technology that would that's almost blasphemous, but what's subversive about it is is that it's revelation, so it came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's our belief when our belief you know comes and overtakes the conversation. And because of that, and because the Quran promises that it will be preserved, it was subversive and remains as subversive socially. It's subversive for yourself as an individual, it can fundamentally alter your you know state of being and your your spiritual uh, self. And it can change uh, communities the way that we had. So the reason why the Sira always begins with this discussion is that it's important to understand what world Islam came into. So today when somebody comes and talks about, well, how can Islam allow slavery? Or how can Islam do this? Or I don't understand this idea of a man marrying more than one woman, etc. We have to remember the world that Islam came into. Not compare Islam with now. First, we got to go back here and say, what, what kind of world was it? What was happening with slavery, with minorities, with religious persecution, with taxation, with religion and state, to make sense of the Islamic message? And then we can come to the modern period and try to make sense of Islam today. So I just want to, just as a, a, a big footnote in all caps, uh, think about Islam as this subversive, no, that's the wrong word, sorry, uh, distru- disruptive technology. The Arabs and their origins. When the alamat talk about the Arabs, they mention three types of Arabs. There are the ancient Arabs, Al-Arab al baidah which no longer exist, nor long or no longer existed at the time of the Prophet So these are the Arabs of Aad, Thamud, Salah, etc. What we call the Proto-Arabs, you know, the or the ancient Arabs. And then For our story, there are two kinds. There are the Arabizing Arabs, Al-Arab, Al-Ariba, which were the original Arab inhabitants of Arabia. And the large family was called Banu Qahtan, and they come from the south in Yemen. And there are the Arabized Arabs, Al-Arab, Al-Mustaraba. And these are the descendants of Sayyidina Ismail. So Ismail ethnically was not an Arab. uh, The son of Abraham, just in case anyone does not know forgot who we're talking about and we know the story of Ibrahim Alaissalam and how he brings his son Ismail and Hajar to this valley of Becca. We know the story. For our concern, Ismail alayhi salam was brought to Mecca as a child and and Mecca and Becca the word in the Quran is, is Becca with a B or be and uh, if I'm not mistaken I think in the Old Testament the valley of Becca or there's a word with B, that also exists. And in the Arab, in the Arabic language, many words that begin with meme can be interchanged with ba' and vice versa. So Mecca, Becca, it becomes the, the, same, the same idea. So because of the Zemzem story, what ends up happening is the water is, is flowing out and um, uh, Hajar is able to you know, kind of build a wall around it so it doesn't overflow. It becomes a well rather than a stream. Well now that there's water, so you know, birds start, are attracted to the water and they start coming down and you know, drinking from the water, etc. So all of these Arab nomads, of, of the Arabizing Arabs, as they're traveling hither and thither and all of that, they see these birds. So they say, okay, there must be food or water or people there. So they come and that's how they come upon Ismail, salam, And he has grown up with these and then he learns the Arabic language and he marries from them so that's why we call the descendants of isma'il alayhi the arabizing uh, arabized arabs <coughs> and of course the arabs then are split into uh, tribes essential tribes branches tribes minor tribes families all of those you know don't it's not a lesson in, in in lineage so we don't have to go into all of that but it's important to know that these different names exist at or right before the time of uh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Or actually, before I do that, let's talk a little bit more about Ismail alayhi Ismail alayhi uh, salam had twelve sons, and the main son is uh, qaidar whose name is also in the Old Testament. And from this time, because the story of zamzam and the discovery of the of the the tribes of of the water in this area isma'il's family salam was always the family in charge of this source of water and then after the construction of the kaaba isma'il and his descendants alayhisalam also in charge of all of those rights what we would today call the hajj you know rites and the pilgrimage and feeding the pilgrims and giving water to the pilgrims and all of these things because they were you know, they were there first. At one point of time, there was mismanagement of these tasks, and the other tribes fought Jorhum, the tribe that Ismail was married into. so Jurhum was asked or forced to leave Mecca. So on their way out, this is when they uh, buried the Zemzem and and stop the flow of the water. And it is why later, as we read into the uh, seerah, it was Abdul Muttalib through this dream that he had that he rediscovered Zemzem and then these rites come back to the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And what's interesting about that story is that, that the people that fought Jurhum, they didn't last. Just like Abraha didn't last. And that's one of the functions of Mecca, anyone throughout history who has had ill intent towards Mecca, didn't have or Medina for that matter didn't have a good, a good end. So that's, that's a fight that you can't fight. Of course, from the descendants of Ismail is our beloved sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Prophet peace be upon him is a direct descendant of Ismail and the Prophet peace be upon him he would only take his lineage back to Adnan. So he is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hashim, the son of Ibn Abdul Manaf, the son of Qusay, the son of Kilab, the son of Murrah, the son of Kaab, the son of Luay, son of Ghalib, son of Fihr, son of Malik, son of Nazar, son of Kinana, son of Khuzayma, son of Mudrika, son of Ilyas, son of Mudar, son of Nazar, son of Mad, son of Adnan. And he would stop there. That's a lot. That's many generations. And he would say that there's no accurate lineage between Adnan and Ismail. But the ulama that you know, really delved into this, they said there are at least 40 generations, 4-0, 40 generations from Adnan back to Ismail. And those 40 generations roughly would yield about 2,500 years. So just to give people a sense of proportion of time, of how much time we're talking about from Ismail to Adnan, and then all of the people that we just mentioned from Adnan to Sayyidina Muhammad Sallam, it's quite a, a, a large chunk of time. So when we talk about the Prophet's lineage Sallallahu and, sallam and his family's right as Banu Hashim of the Kaaba in Mecca, etc., then we know what that means. That's, that's something that's undisputable. You cannot dispute the Prophet at that time. You cannot dispute his lineage you cannot dispute his family's right to to Mecca you cannot dispute the honor and the family that he was born into sallallahu alaihi wasallam that's very important as we understand how the people react in the very beginning of the seerah. so it was a noble and honored family one of the prophet sawallams uh, ancestors qusay uh, took back a lot of the rights that were taken from his family. So that's five generations back. And I'm going to say that this was around 440 of the common era. Qusay is important because he started Dar al-Nadwa. And Dar al-Nadwa was like a civic center in Mecca. This is a center that uh, they used for political meetings to to talk about who's going to do what, disputes, solving disputes. It was also a place where they would exchange ideas. It was a communal civic physical place called Dar al Nadwa and this again was started by one of the prophets sallallahu alaihi wasallam's ancestors and qusay he is the eponym of Quraysh so qusay is also called Quraysh later down the line when we come to hashim and the reason we, we need to know some of these facts as i said in the beginning some of the sira we just need to know names and facts because we need to know these people as part of our understanding of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam hashim was a trader. And he while he was trading in the Levant area, he married when he was there. And he became sick. His wife became pregnant. He became sick and he died. And Hashim is buried in Gaza. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alleviate on the people of Gaza. So if you went to Gaza, there is a maqam there. There is a, a, a shrine there for the grave of Hashim, one of the ancestors of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. His pregnant wife Comes to Medina and stays there, and then her brother-in-law Muttalib comes to bring her back to Mecca after discovering that his you know brother has died and his wife was pregnant and had a child. And because the child comes back with him, the child is called Abdul Muttalib. This is where the name Abdu meaning like the compa- not necessarily slave, but you know, the companion or the, the child of Muttalib. So this is how Abdul Muttalib gets this, this nickname and comes back to Mecca. And as I said before, Abdul Muttalib is the one that has this dream, and then he rediscovers Zemzem. So now all of the honors and the rights resume back to the family. And again, without dispute. No one is disputing that these are the people, that these things belong to these people in this family. Abdul Muttalib, he is the one that swears that if he's given 10 sons, he'll sacrifice one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him 10 sons. So we know the story of having to sacrifice one of the sons, and the name came to Abdullah, who was the father of the Prophet ﷺ. So, begrudgingly, he said, oh, I, gotta, "I guess I have to sacrifice this son." And then the people tell him, "No, you know, don't do that. That's going to become like a sunnah. You know, everyone's going to sacrifice one son. Don't do that. Uh, you know, find a way out." So they deviate. You know, they devise this plan that they'll they'll write ten camels on you know one arrow, and then Abdullah's name on another, and they'll keep rolling the dice, as it were, our expression. Until the number of camels will add 10, 10, 10, and then we get to Abdullah. Whatever the number of camels was, that's how many camels we'll sacrifice, and then we know as the number comes 100. So he sacrifices 100 camels to uh, save his son, Abdullah. And the Sharia takes even from this that this is the expiation for uh, involuntary manslaughter in Islam. It is to pay the family of the deceased, this, this day as blood money. The, the, the monetary value of 100 camels. And if you, there are actually camel exchanges. You can go online. And the price of a camel is, is quite a lot of money. So that's, that's a big ransom that you'd have to pay. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Ana ibn I am the son of the two that were going to be slaughtered. Meaning his father Abdullah and Sayyidina Ismail ﷺ. So this is a little bit of the background into... The lineage of the Prophet going back to Abraha, Abraha gets upset at the uh, desecration of his mega cathedral, so he says, "Okay, I'm going to destroy the Kaaba once and for all." So he takes sixty thousand troops, and between nine and thirteen elephants, to go and march on Mecca. At this time, Abdul Muttalib, he's he's like the guy in charge of Mecca. Okay, he's the the, the senior family member of this family whose job it is to oversee all of these rights. So, uh, Abraha stops and then Abdul Muttalib he goes out to meet him and he says, "Okay, you know, just give me my livestock and we're going to leave the city." So the people around Abdul Muttalib they thought this was very strange. I mean, they thought well, you were going to go negotiate something with him. You know, what do you mean you're going to take your own stuff and leave? And he said, "This is Allah's house. It has a lord that will, will protect it. That's not my job." My job is to feed the people and my family. As far as Mecca and the house, Allah will protect it. And that's what happened. You know, الفيل, the story of Surah al feel The elephant's name, again, just a little fact: the elephant's name, that uh, the main elephant that was going to come and attack, his name was Mahmud. And the driver or the rider or the captain or whatever the rider, I don't even know the right word, the rider of Mahmoud became blind after this episode. And Sayyidina Aisha, salam, she says later in the, in the, in the seerah, because Sayyidina Aisha is born later, she says that I saw the rider of the elephant Mahmoud in Mecca and he was blind. Uh, you know, just like begging people in the street. So this is something that was witnessed. So this event was witnessed. And about 50 days later, was the Milad of the Prophet ﷺ. We'll talk about the Milad in details later. We said that Abdul Muttalib wanted 10 sons. He was given 10 sons. Abdullah is the father of the Prophet wasallam. But there are other famous sons that we need to know because they are important for the seerah. We, there is, of course, Abu Lahab. I was was talking about the elephant Mahmood. (laughs) The first famous son was Abu Lahab, who I'm sure we've all heard of, Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab bin Watab, who was a kafir by the text of the Qur'an. Then there was Abu Talib. And Abu Talib, there are differences of opinion. Some of the ulama say he was the kafir. Some say that he was a believer. So we say that he was a believer out of our love for the Prophet ﷺ and this neither adds nor subtracts to our belief system if Abu Talib was a believer or not a believer. But one of the, the ulama of Arabia, Ahmad Zain al-Dahlan, who's also in, our, in, in my silsila of, uh, of the Shafi Madhab, he wrote a book, a treatise demonstrating and proving that Abu Talib was saved. And then there's Abdullah, the father's prophet, who dies, of course, before the prophet is born, sallallahu alayhi wa and is buried out, uh, near Medina. And then Hamza, who was Muslim, and Al-Abbas, who was Muslim, radiyallahu anhumah. And then the mother of the prophet, وسلم, being Amina, who was the daughter of Wahb ibn Abdul Manaf. So there is family relation between the prophet, sallam, and his wife, Amina, afwan, going back to Abdul Manaf. I will talk about the detail of the Milad next time. The last thing I'll say in closing was I wanted to talk a little bit very briefly about religion at the time in Arabia at the advent of the of the Prophet at the time of his birth and the Risala, Because then this becomes the main you know, subject. We're not so concerned with economic policy and you know state form of government, but it was a message of religion and belief. Religion in Arabia we refer to it as the Jahili period, but it was a little bit more diverse or detailed or nuanced than that. So there were some people that were atheists and naturalists. So for example, in Surah Al-Jathiyah, verse 24, وَقَالُوا مَا هي إِلَّا حَيَاتُنَا الدُّنْيَا وَمَا يَهْلِكُنَا إِلَّا الدَّهْرِ So some people, they believed it's just our life and in this world, and then we die with the passage of time. So they didn't, they didn't believe in anything. They just believed, all, this is what it is. You know, naturalists. Some of them were deists, but did not believe in the hereafter. So they believe in the concept of a creator or a God or, or something like that, but they don't believe that there is. We, we die and that's it. Some of them were deists, and they believe in the hereafter, but they don't believe in the prophet or the concept of prophecy, either before or Sayyidina Muhammad wasallam. And some of them were polytheists, which is the majority religion at this time. And polytheism was introduced into Mecca by Amr ibn Luhay, who was uh, a trader. And he went north and he saw all of these idols. And he said, oh, this is a pretty cool idea. We should bring these idols to Mecca. And, And he is the one that brought this concept of polytheism into Central Arabia. And that's what we're usually used to referring to when we talk about the seerah. There were of course Jews and Christians, so these also existed in Arabia, Jews more in Medina uh, than in Mecca, maybe there were some as traitors, but the the stronghold of of Arabian Jews was in Yathrib, later changed the name into Medina. And there was Zoroastrianism, so the tribe of Tamim was Zoroastrian, so uh, not very popular, but this also existed and then there was what we can refer to as hanafism or the abrahamic faith so there were some people that believed in the religion of abraham and isma'il alayhim assalam few but their their names were listed you know Waraq ibn nawfal uh, the cousin of lady khadijah abdullah ibn jahsh the cousin of hamza uthman ibn huwayrith uh, the grandson of uh, Ab- abdul uzza Zayd ibn amr ibn uh, nawfal the uncle of umar Etc. Etc. so there were some names of people that held this belief of monotheism and they 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 attributed this belief to Abraham and Ismail so these were some of the thought trends at the time in Arabia at the time of the the advent of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so these are the type of people and type of uh, ideas that he was referring to and the next time inshallah we will get into the details of the milad of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Questions? No foreign king, but but there was they you know the tri- like mecca was a state and the uh, the family of the prophet ben Hashem they were the ones in charge of it like that so you'll find cities or tribes or or little areas but they ruled themselves the arabs ruled themselves i'm talking about the foreign influences you no know, in central arabia many many different uh tribes and and they all fought each other but but not necessarily foreign controlled Oman Bahrain all of those even uh, western part of Iraq all of those were arabs also all around and Arabia the was
1: not by
0: the Yes that's what I'm saying so we say subhanallah you know that it was always the periphery uh, Alexander The great, uh, when he marched through the north, you know they were saying, well, why don't we go? He says, there's nothing there. Nothing, why would I go there? So he was really left alone. And this helps the development of pure Arabic. Even though language by by definition is, is impacted by other languages, and even the script of the Arabic script is impacted by other Semitic languages. But the Arabic language was so pure that the the Quran being revealed in Arabic now we see that one of the wisdoms behind it is that the Arabic language is able then to contain this message and then preserve it even until today so it's quite phenomenal it's quite phenomenal it's very important this this aspect that we understand that
1: could be also the landscape
0: when you go there you see is black yeah i mean that's why alex i mean alexander was right from a Strategy point of view is so what is there for me to take, and that's yeah. Of course, I mean, other than Zemzem, there's there's nothing in Mecca. I mean, even now when you go, it's 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 a rough it's a rough city, Mecca. It's not like Medina. Medina is very easy and breezy and you know greenery somewhat. Mecca is not like that at all. Uh, which is why the the Jews and others would would settle in Medina, not Mecca. But that's where the but that's where the Prophet Hitler was born. Hitler never meant to matter? What? To that part of what?
1: Hitler, he never thought of that because we we're all sand and bare. Uh,
0: well, Hitler also didn't think about a lot of other things. That's, that's the least of our problems with Hitler.
1: And Islam has never, um, it has not separated by a sword. But how come the emblem of Saudi two swords, which is mis- uh, mistaken by the, by the people of other
0: religions? Well, first of all, the, the flag of Saudi Arabia has one sword. I mean, Not I mean, two. two Not on the flag. On the flag it says, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, and there's one sword. Yeah. yeah, but the, 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 the other symbol of the, the tree, the palm tree, and the two swords, this is a, uh, um, an association of the family of Saud and the family of Al-Sheikh, the descendants of Muhammad Abdul Wahab. Because the family of Al-Saud. United, or the other way around, the family of al Sheikh, the descendants of Muhammad Abdullah, or whoever, they both united to overthrow the Ottoman rule of Arabia. This has nothing to do with Islam whatsoever. This has to do with the political history of, of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. How about the How about the bald eagle holding thirteen arrows in its in its uh, claw? No one ever says looks at that and says uh, that America is, is spreads by the sword. Even though it does, we, we force our way on the world. But they'll say, Oh no! But the eagle looks to the left or it looks to the right, and this is uh, a meaning that it means. Peace. Don't you hear? This is what they taught us at school, right? Yeah. Can anyone second me here, or am I by myself? Yeah. yeah? You say thank you, right? So, th- so we should not succumb to stupidity. Really, we need to stop, do, stop not, not that you are, but I'm saying we need to stop listening to this nonsense. These are all, you know, meaningless things, meaning, meaningless statements. And they don't mean anything. Islam was spread by the sword. Why is the sword on the flag? Look at the dollar bill. Look at the do- I don't have any, I'm a poor person. Look at the dollar bill. You will see, you will see the arrows in the, in the claw of the bald eagle.
2: If what? About Ismail.
0: Yeah. If he was Yemenite. How about his Is he also Yemenite? He, well, he was what? Yemenite. Like, Ismael. Ismael. Abraham's son. Isha. Yeah. Is he also Yemenite or is Yemenite? No, they weren't. They weren't Yemen. They were from the Tigris-Euphrates area. So they're more Arabs. No, they're not Arabs. The Abraham and his and and Is and Ismail are non-Arabs. Yeah, Ismail ethnically is not an Arab. Definitely. But when he marries into the tribe of Jurhum, he learns Arabic, he's still not an Arab, but his descendants, his children, they're Arab, or half Arab, and, and then it becomes Arabized. That's why they call them the Arabizing, Arabized Arabs. Because they 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 become ethnically Arab. But the Prophet Wasallam, he said, Al Lisan." Arabness is about the language. So, we're just talking about the history, but... but right. We define Arabism as, if you speak Arabic, then you're an Arab. That's, that's what the Prophet Wasallam was trying to tell us. Yes. And, then, and most likely, Hajar dies shortly after the Zamzam story. I mean, she didn't last very long. So, it, so not only is he by himself, but he has, he's, he's raised by these people. So he becomes an Arab, you know, for all intents and purposes. Near Medina, because he was he was tra- he was uh, going for business. Also, he yeah. and and the uh, the wife uh, and the mother of the Prophet, saw uh, uh, Amina, also dies in, in uh, near Medina for the same reason. She's going to visit uh, her, her husband's grave and dies in that area. And her grave is known. Yes, yeah, subhanAllah. And the Prophet visited his parents' grave. Yes. I mean, later in life. And we believe that all of the lineage of the of the family of the Prophet, his father and mother, and all of the people that we mentioned, we believe that they were all pious people. We don't believe that they were d- disbelievers or mushrikeen or anything like that. That's one of our articles of belief. Because Allah says, وَتَقَلُّبُكَ فِي fisajideen That Allah has passed you genetically from one pious person, a sajid, one prostrating person, to the next. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said of myself, I have come from uh, lawful marriage, I have the, the illicit relations of the jahiliyyah have never touched my family. So that's also one of our beliefs.
1: He visited Madina and he um, saw some of the relatives there also. And once they were returning, it was not that far from the father's
0: grave yes. that Aminah got sick and she died. It, it Correct. Touched. Yes. And then he also visited their graves later in life yes. after the resale. Like I said before, people that say that people that say that they do not like the success that Islam had historically as a religious system. So that's these statements come from that belief. They don't they don't like that. Well, I can't change history. This is a disruptive technology. That's it. Will always be like that. So that's just the nature of it. Yeah, it took several hundred years for countries like Egypt to become fifty percent Muslim. Several hundred years. So, so when we read what the, what the ancient world looked like politically and socially and religiously, we can understand why these people welcomed the the, the the Arab Muslims at the time, because they saw this as like great. You know, this is much better than what we've been dealing with. There was no destruction of libraries and and. And and uh, academics and you know nobody blew up the pyramids. The Sahaba prayed next to the pyramids. They even dressed like the locals when they came. The Sahaba when they went to Persia, they they wore the the pants of the Persians. What does that mean? It means that you know they just, they, they were even keel about it. It's cold. It's not cold in Arabia. We're not. We can't wear the Arabian izar. We're gonna dress like you guys. No problem. Eat like you. Intermarried. It, you know oh you have other religious beliefs what does that mean they translated all of these things they dealt with these people like ahlul kitab because we have a concept that we can live with other people of other religious beliefs etc 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 and the jizya from just a financial point of view was much different than like roman taxation you know the jizya is nominal compared to the excessive taxes levied on the on the on subjects in the roman empire so you know when people say oh but you jizya i mean yeah but, but that's like you have a five piece puzzle and you're holding one piece and you keep showing me this piece. I said, but there's four other pieces of the puzzle to make the whole picture. So we want to have a more complete understanding. Yeah.
1: So Islam being spread uh, by this war uh, uh, is a uh, falsification of history. Uh, and uh, so people look at the success of Islam. Uh, how come Islam
0: has been successful? Um, you know, it's because of jealousy. Sure. I remember when I, was, when I was younger and we went on this uh, cruise on the Nile. Uh, and we went to like Luxor, Aswan, and we saw all of these pharaonic uh, sites, one of the things that, I, I, that stuck out is many of these pharaonic sites have, um, you know, like the, the wall of these temples, is all hieroglyphics. It's not like a blank wall. So every brick has all these hieroglyphics. And you'll find smack dab in the middle, somebody took a huge cross and imprinted a cross in the middle of the... Uh, and it looked very weird. So I said, what's this? And they're like, oh, well, when the, when the Romans came, the Roman Christians, they converted all of these temples into churches. So they'll go stamp the cross everywhere. So we didn't do that. We just built a mosque. Now I'm not criticizing... Uh, I'm not saying all of Christians are like that, but this is a historical fact that they did this. That's what I meant by the Byzantians grafting Christianity on antiquity. So they want to erase the antiquity and erase the ancient world and make it Christian. Whereas, but that's later. I'm talking about in the in this time about the spread of Islam and all of that. We lived, we lived with everybody, no problem. And at the time when Islam entered into Egypt, because I know Egypt very well more than the other places, there were still people that followed the ancient Egyptian religion. But they didn't last because it's not a disruptive technology. Not because they were persecuted. Do you have, is there anyone today that can, can talk in ancient Egyptian? No, the language is dead. Just like Syriac and Aramaic and all of these languages. But Arabic is the disruptive technology of Islam, which allowed it then and today to be disrupted. That's, that's how we have to understand this. So it lasted. Yeah. Uh, question about uh, Abraham. Abraham went to Mecca to destroy Kaaba. To build the Kaaba. Abraha, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah Abraha was like uh, like a two-time general he, he was not like a, of significance that's why he ends up in Yemen not back home so he he's trying to make something of himself but that's not the the najesh is not like that and then the najashi, the negus he changes i mean that's just like the title so the the, the, the negus at the time of the prophet sa Wasallam, he knew the prophet sallam, said that he's a good man he says go he said to the companions go to abyssinia there is a good king who will treat you fairly so that's the hikmah. and that's what happened islam was welcomed and integrated and they stayed uh, okay, was the jashi converted to islam? yeah we believe later he became muslim and the prophet prayed not pray on him so so technically he's a tabi'i uh, what about among the companions uh, anybody converted to christian no so, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. oh really I I I I bet they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's ringing. uh, Yeah, so there were there were people from the Sahaba, or they're not Sahaba. There were there were people at the time of the Prophet SAW that became Muslim and left Islam. I mean, this is documented, but they're not like, you know, thousands of people that that did that. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's true. But 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 the Prophet SAW never acted on any of these people that were Muslim and left Islam. There is an ayah about Surah Al-Baqarah,
1: right? That people, uh, don't, worry about the, uh, the that don't worry about the
0: people that come uh, be a Muslim and at the end of the day they, they revert to, to, the, to their old religion. I don't know if it's in Surah Al-Baqarah. But yes, the, the, there's no... There's no... Um, had the punishment for somebody leaving is, there's no punishment for somebody leaving Islam. I mean, there's uh, afterlife consequences, but there's no, no? La Yeah, la and 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 the Prophet himself never did that. The only th- the only thing that the Prophet sallallahu he said is that the had punishment is for al al mufariqun the person that leaves the religion and violates the trust of the community, which we under, which the ulama understand as like a spy. So if somebody spies on behalf of the enemy, the way that some of the Jewish tribes did during the Battle of Khandaq, that's why the Prophet Sallallahu fought Khaybar and all of that later, after the Battle of Khandaq, because they were selling state secrets to the enemies. And they were telling them, oh, this hut, this is where the food is. This hut, this is where the women is. This hut, this is where the weapons are. Those are you know, state secrets in a time of war. So it's not about leaving Islam. It's about spying, you know, uh, and people misunderstand that. yeah so they're not, they're not La, we we believe we don't we don't believe that they are kafir we believe that they were muwahhidin but they are in hell right also, no but this is a hadith. because they, yeah, yeah that hadith has other tawilat has other other meanings meaning um, yani they're our they're our ancestors yani in 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 a broad sense not specifically my father because so in, in our aqidah, we believe in something called Ahl al the people that exist in between the time of two prophets. So anybody that was between the time of Sayyidina Isa and the time of Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, we believe all of these people are saved in Yawm al-Qiyamah, even if they were polytheists, because there was no risalah for them to follow. It's called Ahl al Fatra, the people of the time period, based on this verse. So there's no message for them to follow because there's no preservation of Christianity. Within the first 50 years of Christianity, there's like 50 churches, they're all fighting each other, no one knows what the message is. There are all these gospels, no one has one gospel. So there's nothing for you to follow, and there's no risala. So the people, the ancestors of the Prophet these are these people. Yeah, there's, no, there's nothing for them to take for them to, to be in the hellfire for but the family member that were there during his lifetime and did not believe in him in yeah abu Lah tabat yada abila bin Utab. this is different he has the, the, the rasul himself not just the risala he has the rasul qil wa qil there is difference not, of not, opinion no there are some hadith that on his deathbed one of the hadith said the, uh, I can't remember who the Sahabi was, but he came out and he says to the Prophet, The sentence or the statement you wanted him to say, he said it. Meaning the Shahada. So, out of love for the Prophet, we say, Okay, he was saved. I mean, it doesn't add or subtract to our belief. But the people that love the Prophet, they make this a big deal. They said, No, no, he believed. He believes. Yeah. What was It's like the municipal hall of Mecca where anything publicly, uh, anything that involved the community that's yeah, if they had to talk about plowing the roads for the, for the upcoming snowstorm, it would have been in Dar al you but there was no snow, but that was just an example you had, for us. you had something? that's the best question, as long as it's not riba, we're okay <laughs> Sorry for your loss. So the 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 soul is let's say tethered to the body in some way. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but let's just you know say there's like a string. I mean, just for our own imagination, that tethers the soul to the body. But when the soul, uh, uh, when the body is weakened or unconscious, like when we sleep. The soul like comes out and it's like having a good time. That's why we have dreams because our soul's doing something. You know, sometimes we don't have any dreams. Sometimes we have really wacky dreams. It's because the soul is able to come out of the body. And that's why people that are you know like these yogis and stuff that you know fast never have never eaten in the last eighty years and they're like levitating. That's why because their their body is is so weak and loosened that their soul can do all of these. It doesn't mean anything if spiritually. That's just a fact of life. So when you die, it's even more like that, where the body's dead, it's not going to come back, but the soul is there. So the soul is more, the, the tethering is, is looser, and the soul is able to do much more, many more things, which is why many times we, we have dreams of our deceased relatives. And people will come and say, my mom came to me last night in a dream. My father came to me last night. Like, my mom will tell me that all the time. Dad came to me yesterday and, and, and said, so, I mean, I understand now that she means, when I was younger, I didn't understand what that meant. Now I, I realize that she's dreaming. And that's, that actually happens. That means her father did, Allah alhamdulillah did come to my mother in the dream and was giving her this message, that message, so on and so forth. But the soul will still be somewhat tethered to that place where the body has been buried. So the, the, it's not completely free. That's why we go to the grave and we make du'a. Why? And we read Fatiha and stuff like that. Because that's where your father is. He's right there. Body, but the soul is sort of tethered. But that's also why we can make du'a for your father right now. And it's going to, he's going to receive it. Because there's no time and space as different after death than it is for us now. So... All of those things about talking to, to the deceased, and, and you, you can do that from here, or you can do that at the grave. We go to the grave really because of us, not because of the deceased, because it makes us feel better. And I want to be there, and you know, I mean, yes, I can say salam to the Prophet from here, but I really want to go to Medina. That's for me, but he can, see, he, can, he can hear me here, and he responds to my salam from here. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad, who he just said, Wa alaikas salam. But it's not like being there, right? Because when I'm there, it makes me be in the zone. So it's the same thing when we go to vis- visit our, our relatives. So that's the life in the grave. And inshallah, the grave is a garden of the gardens of paradise. So it just becomes a uh, VIP lounge in transit until you get to the first class cabin. So it, that's, it's just a good place. So you go and you make du'a and things like that but their time uh experience of time is different than our experience of time so in the grave we will feel like it will be a matter of moments So like you know you're saying in the grave but do you actually mean like in the, in his grave or is that like a metaphorical thing yes and no the the body is in the grave because physically that's where it is. It will be resurrected on Yom al Qiyama and reunited with the soul, but then there is another experience that the soul is happening. I can't. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, at Barzakh or you know life after death. So you could say you could say both. But the person in the grave will feel that their time in the grave is just a few moments before Qiyama. So the, the nature of time has, has shifted. What's that movie where the guy gets stuck in another dimension and he's like talking to his wife like behind the wall, but it's like interstellar. interstellar. That's the idea. Is that it's, it, for us, like 80 years have passed, right? Or 500 years have passed. But the person in the grave, it's like 10 seconds. I just got here. But it's qiyamah already. So it happens quick after we die. For, uh, for that experience. And that's what the Qur'an says, that you know, one day for us is like a thousand with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the idea of Einstein and the, you know, the, the, the different concept of time and space-time, and, and as a time as a dimension and things like that, that's sort of how we understand, understand that. So while the grave is like the lounge before you move on, it's going to be very brief. Uh, because time will be experienced differently. Yeah, yeah, but we're talking about something a little bit more personal. But, so so you, can, you can talk to the soul of
2: the deceased person, like I can talk to that person even if I'm in another country, I
0: can, yeah, I can talk to them. Of course. And, um, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not, by the way, criticizing going to the grave. I'm just making a point that we do that for ourselves because it's something that we need to do and we need to experience. But... Theologically speaking, as just a, a as an academic concept, of course, if I make du'a for my grandfather right now, he got right, boom, he, he you know, inbox, it's right there. And that, what yeah, the souls meet. Yes, it's a means of communication, but we're not going to build on it any, anything. So if like my grandfather comes to me, and he says, you know, I'm ordering you to burn down ICCP, <laughs> I'm going to wake up and be like, okay, that's obviously not what I'm supposed to do. So what is preserved in the dream is the image, not the voice. So if you dream of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ tells you to burn down ICCP, you're not going to burn down ICCP, because what is preserved is the surah. من رآني the Prophet said, whoever sees me has really seen me. He didn't say whoever hears me has heard me speak. So what is preserved is the image, not the voice in the dream. So yes, the, the, the souls can meet. But if you, know, if you have a dream of the deceased and they t- tell you something good, I mean, you, you wake up and you, know, you take that as a good sign. I mean, you don't have to take that as a bad sign. We only make this point about the negative stuff.
2: already been judged in the hellfire before the Day of
0: Judgment. Because it's about how we experience time. But they're not there now. They're just experiencing, you know, it's their experience. They're not there now is our statement because we're not there yet. But when we die and we're there, it will we'll have, have gotten there. <laughs>
2: but when you say they're in the hellfire, you're saying that they're, they're experiencing the grave like the
0: hellfire? Yeah, so they're the, in the you know, no, no, It's it's like the pre- it's just the bad lounge. They did, They they got the ac- economy ticket. Yeah. Inshallah, we're all gonna be in the VIP lounge. Inshallah. Yeah. Yeah. No, please. You mean in the hereafter? Not in the hereafter, I'm talking about before the day of No, no, I mean after we die, I mean. Are we talking about or are we talking about now? Uh, well, yeah, so y- 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 you want to be buried next to good people uh, because if you're not, then you hear all of the commotion that's happening with the person next to you. And that, and there's so many stories about, about, about that. Um, uh, you know, after the battle of Badr the Prophet ﷺ was talking to the, to the Quraysh that were killed and the sahaba like, what are you doing he's like they hear me just like you hear me but they can't respond and he said to them I found what Allah promised me right did you find what Allah, what Allah promised you to be right you know he's you know posturing he's talking to the, to the enemy so you don't want to be buried next to those people that's why we have Muslim cem- every religion has their own you know cemeteries and why we want to be buried next to our loved ones and our family and, and things like that that's just a good habit but yes, I mean, I can't like give you like the uh, the the agenda or, or, or of the, of the meeting. But yes, I mean, I would say broadly yes, you, you will meet with your family when you when you die in the VIP lounge. In the VIP lounge, all of us, inshallah, there's a very big lounge, because the Prophet sallallahu said that you will be resurrected with those whom you love, and that's why love is such a fundamental part of our religion. If you love the right people, you'll be with them. If you love the Prophet Wasallam, you'll be with him. Uh, and you love your family and your friends and your colleagues and your teachers, you'll be with them, of course. And that's what the Prophet Wasallam said. I mean, how is exactly, I, I don't know, I don't have the words to describe that, but the answer for your question is yes, inshallah, we'll be with them. Wa yakum, inshallah. Wa No, not on Friday. Maybe in your country it's only on Friday, but in the rest of the world it's it's it happens all the time. so when you when you do a good deed when you when you do a good deed for somebody that has passed away and you say... Meaning, I'm gonna uh, feed this person, and I want the reward of this feeding to go to my grandfather. Instantaneously, that reward is presented to them as as a you know as a as a good deed, and it benefits them now in their grave. So, but my grandfather knows that I'm the one that did that. Okay. that it's not only on Friday at Asar time. And then Asr time here is not, on Friday, is not Asr time in Mecca. It's not Asr time in in Canada. I mean, He was what? He was an Arab man. Who? He Arab man. No. He wasn't Arab, right? On his passport, it didn't say Arab. Hajara came from Egypt, right? <laughs> In Africa. of course, all good people come from Egypt. <laughs> Yes. <coughs> no, the Prophet himself did. When the Prophet inv- advised the Sahaba, he said, I advise you to be, to be good to the Egyptians because we have a family relationship with them. Meaning, Hajar, who was, as we saw, maybe 60, 70 generations uh, up. He, the Prophet ﷺ himself said this. That we have a family relationship with with Egypt, so be gentle with them, be kind with them. Does it still apply? It depends yeah. who the Egyptian is. Yes, uncle. Well, Abyssinia is different. You'll find uh, Ethiopic uh, sources and, and their own history, <coughs> for sure. I mean, I'm not familiar with them, but I know that, that in, uh, in their own language, etc. Yemen or Arabia in general, it's a little bit more difficult. There are some historical records, uh, particularly with the areas in, that came into contact with other uh, larger empires for trading purposes. But but still not that much. I mean, the Romans and the Persians, to be honest, really didn't think much of Arabia. Other than a resource to take things from. Frankincense, spices, you know, maybe some fabrics or something like that. That's about it. They didn't really care for them that much. So you will find some things, but they'll be very bare. Which is another... Sign for us. It's another thing that you know we don't have like a contending history of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi or a contending history of early Islam. Even though Orientalists have tried to do that, but you know, never it never really mounts amounts to much. So you do find some things. And very, very rarely, I think there's a Chinese historical reference to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Um you know, you, and I think somebody told me that in southern India, in Kerala, there might be some uh, southern Indian reference to somebody who went to Arabia, became Muslim, and came back. That's the same thing as the China thing. So in those cases, the Muslim scholars tend to accept those stories. So if somebody in China says, in our records, in our Chinese records, somebody from this area went to Medina, became Muslim, and came back, and then this is a Sahaba, we say, okay, that's a, we respect that. We don't, we don't tend to contend with that. Because it doesn't add or subtract to the... It adds for sure. It doesn't subtract to our belief or anything like that. And in the 60s, there was this... Um, I think Muslim from Bulgaria or Hungary that came to Al-Azhar and he said that he said we're muslims from the first generation and he he, I, he presented like some kind of presentation so the the ulama they said okay we accept that we have no reason to argue against that but in general the the historical sources are very few they're trying to find like archaeological digs in in southern arabia and and um, in the eastern part of arabia and they find you know some markings here, some markings there, but it's very, very basic. N- nothing, you know, nothing big. Yeah. Şeyh, uh, uh, did have any siblings or his own child? He's an only child from Abdullah and Aminah, but he has siblings from wet nurses. Okay, so they're not siblings. Wet well, in the Sharia, they are. They're considered his sister and his brother from Halima and the other women that nursed him. There are, in Islam, those are like your brother and sister. Yeah, we, just, we just don't refer, to, they're not blood brother and sister, but they're brother and sister from wet nursing. And the Prophet sallam, asked about them later in, in Islam. He asked about so and so and so and so. And one of the stories is that I think a Shaymat was the daughter of, of Halima. She carried the Prophet Wasallam and i think if i'm not mistaken that he bit her so later in this time she showed him the bite mark so no so that would be her, his sister but through what through rada through through nursing but, but by biting. yeah means
1: biting and it goes back
0: to yes yeah, yeah. so Abdullah. What about them?
1: Uh,
0: recently? Uh, after you left, huh? It was for it was for it was for New Year's. I, I don't know. I, I didn't. I don't know anything about that. That just
2: happens every year with the change of the season.
0: With the yeah, I mean, I've been there before in in Medina. It's almost impossible to walk to the haram because you're stepping on, you know, you're not allowed to kill anything in in Mecca and Medina. So you're like, oh my God, did I just killed like 50 insects. Am I like, do I have to go make like five hajj now? I mean, it's, it, and they're big. They're like, it, but that's, I think, a part of the region. Somebody here had their hand up? No. Can I ask? You, you mentioned that the were pure and righteous. Yes. If they are pure and righteous, no, it's not like a foolproof thing. Retroactively, is yes, but 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 moving forward, yeah, there's so, definitely a, a special place for the family of the Prophet SAW, particularly the early generation. Um, you know, the descendants of of. Uh, of Imam Ali and Fatima and the Ahlul Bayt, without doubt. But there are people who I've met who are descendants of the family of the Prophet, and you know they have their own problems, and so it's not like a, a foolproof. But that that relationship will benefit them Yomul Qiyamah. The Prophet ﷺ said, "Every family relation will be cut off Yomul Qiyamah except my family relation. Illa wa
2: on the state of Christianity at the time of the Prophecyism, because you talked about the Nicene Creed in 325 and how it cemented Pauline Christianity and the Trinitarian Creed.
0: I didn't talk about that. Well,
2: I mean, that's what it is. You didn't talk about it. But you talked about the Nicene Creed. But um, I find that hard to believe that it's the same type of Christianity as it was in the East because of the stories of like, Salman Farsi, No, it's not. Eli- at all. Yeah, it's not, right? Yeah, it's so not. what kind of Christianity would
0: that be? I mean, I mean I, it's been a long time since I looked at ancient uh, Christianity. But, but that's why I limited myself to just the high-level remarks where I know I, that much I remember. No, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. But um, the theological differences between the churches sometimes are night and day. Nothing compared to like the differences between Sunnis and Shias. Yeah. Where, where the differences between Sunnis and Shias are really like five issues that could actually be surmountable. But you know, everything, 95% of everything else is essentially the same. Yeah. This is different. Yeah. This is like one saying Christ is divine and the other saying Christ is not divine. Well, that's the difference between the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's a tremendous difference. Some
2: Christians don't believe in the Trinity
0: either. <laughs> Some Christians don't believe in the Trinity um, salvation, scripture, the gospel. The gospel itself was a point of contention up until the canonical Bible was put together. So in, in the study of Christianity, we have the canonical gospels, you know, the four gospels, uh, Mark, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and plus the other books that form up the, 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 the gospel. But then there are apocryphal gospels. There are gospels that are not, they didn't make the cut. They voted on that. Imagine us saying, these 10 surahs are the Qur'an, yes. but then these 50 surahs, you think they are, you don't think they are, you take three, you take six, I take five. That's what it's like. Yeah. That's like for us, that, you know, our mind goes haywire. So, and those Gospels still are out there. Uh, I By mean, Thomas. Thomas and Barnabas and all of that kind of stuff. And then they keep coming up with all of these discoveries and of, of different ancient texts, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that kind of stuff that adds to the discussion. So there was tremendous differences. Even till today, even till today, the churches have this never-ending you know, reconciliation of like, can you be baptized in this church and attend in this church, which in our language is basically, you're a kafir and I'm a mu'min. Yeah. Will I let you come and pray with me or not? I mean, that's, that's yeah. the conversation that they're still having till today. Obviously, it's done... They're much more civil than, than we are when we f- talk about these things. But at the heart, it's the, it's iman and kufr, even till today.
2: So I actually kind of have a sad question. It's related to this. And I've asked you this before, but I kind of want to like dig into this academically a little bit. So when it comes to these doctrinal issues within, I guess you could say, modern Christianity, like the Trinitarian Creed, <clears throat> or maybe like certain Calvinists, I guess, like why would we not consider, how would, I'm not trying to be sectarian or anything, but how do you reconcile that with people of the book? I mean, just take the Trinity for example. You know, God is three but He's one or He's one but three.
0: People Um, of the book is a a concept that means for us that this religion was originally a divinely revealed religion that has what we call a book, but the book is not preserved. We know that. And their prophet or... They have a person that we call the prophet, or a prophet, or a series of prophets that we acknowledge as prophets that received revelation from God. Therefore, we deal with them the way we deal with people of the book all the same way. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that we agree with their theology, or we agree with their practice, or or this or that. But, you know, when I was in Japan, and I, I went to all of these Shinto shrines, you know, they go back to like the second century. I went to a shrine that was from 210 A.D. Okay, I mean that's got to be a religion. That didn't come out. That's just that's not like a totem pole in in the jungle somewhere. That's got to be a religion. They have wudu. They have prayer. They have. They say no, we're not a religion. We're not religion. whatever, man. For me, this is a deen. This is Ahlul kitab. That's what it means. But if you're in some you know Micronesian island and there are people that are. You know, made the date, and they worship the date, and the, the stuff that we read about in the Jahiliyyah. That's not Ahlul Kitab. Those people, we need to make you know dawa to those people if you if you encounter them. But all these other things, Confucianism and Buddhism and Hinduism and Christianity and all the sects, we deal with them as Ahlul Kitab. Means it gives us a, a way to coexist with them, to deal with them, to respect them, to allow them to worship. You know, if they can preserve their own places of worship, etc. It does not mean that we, we accept their theology. Okay. That's the difference. So
2: then from an academic point of view why would stuff like the trinity not be considered shirk
0: it is theologically oh, it is theologically mm-hmm. but but theology theologically is not how we go around and deal with people you don't deal with yeah, your yeah. neighbors of course, of course. you know you don't go to your neighbor and be like let's discuss you know Pythagoras and, yeah. and uh, that's the academic or Thomas Aquinas who's that yeah. Is that like the new band or something? Is that, like, is that a player on Fortnite? I mean, what is that? So that's not how we deal with people. So when we talk, we have to be, we have to be careful of what kind of conversation that we're having. From the Islamic theological perspective, without doubt, the trinity is shirk. Yeah. And kufr, all, all tied up in... And bid'ah, the bid'ah trinity, all three in one. But that doesn't mean that I can't love yeah. and respect my Christian neighbor and allow and say, you're Ahlul Kitab and stuff like that. But, you know, that God... Uh, manifested into a confined physical being for us is in impossibility for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because Allah is beyond space and beyond time, he cannot be confined so for us that's disbelief yeah
2: diversity Of opinions on these issues. So, if anyone's interested, the podcast is called uh, "Diffused Congruence."
0: About Christianity?
2: Yeah, about Islamic uh, the ulama's views mm-hmm. of Christianity's different theological issues and, and the notion of uh, of Isa in the Islamic.
0: Oh, great! Yeah, so yeah. Go, so go listen, go listen to that. Yes. So they you know when you come and visit. Sure, yeah. yeah. The Prophet ﷺ said, I used to forbid you from going to the graves, now go to the graves and visit. Yani for us, of course, to benefit them, but you can benefit them, as I said, you know, now. You know, Allah's thawab system is, is better than Amazon Prime. Okay? If you can order Amazon Prime and get it tomorrow, the thawab, Allah's thawab system is instantaneous. If you do something for your deceased relative now, they get it now. Right now. So, I'm just making the point that we we have a relationship. We don't have to feel that because they're there, buried, and I'm here, there's no relationship. No, I can have a relationship. But no, we should go and visit, and they know, and they hear us when we go, and all of those things, of course. Absolutely. And we have to, you know, take care of the grave, and put some greenery there, and Make du'a. Those, those things are very important. You can't them, is, your is your link not clear, or I mean, what's what's happening there? I don't. With them, this is not an b- issue of belief. This is a, a reality. Can the dead person hear you? Yes, they just can't respond to you. So you're making du'a for them. Where's the shirk in that? But you're not asking your, di- you're not asking your relative to give, you to give you something. You're praying for them because their hisab uh, has stopped. Yeah, but when you make dua, what does that mean? You're asking Allah to bless this person. Allah forgive this person. So when the Prophet Wasallam he said, when a person dies, their hisab stops except for three things. A pious answer, a descendant that prays for them. So that means when you pray for them, meaning you ask Allah to bless them, ask Allah to forgive them, Allah answers and they're forgiven. Or sadaqah or, or... No. Just like we're talking now, and you talk to the, a, a dead person, it's the same thing Theologically, the person can hear you, they're there. Because we don't believe that death is the end of life. Death is just the transition from one mode of living to another mode of living. The people that say that, they believe that death is its over. Like you turned, you unplugged the, the machine, it's gone. But that's not what death is. The Prophet never told us that. Imam Ali, he said, People are asleep and when they die, they wake up. So... The, the, the belief system to be complete a belief system, no, when you go to a, the grave, th- there is no possibility of shirk because the people are alive. We're there to, ha- to, to do our obligation to them. Just like when we die, I hope people will come and visit us and pray for us. Well, I mean, like from here? I mean, from here or, or, or to go. But to go is for us. Why? Because it's a, remem- a remembrance. To remember that this is where you're going to end up. Where is he buried? Tabiella, let's go. Yeah, don't listen to those people. That's why every time, you know, there's a death, you know, I'm I'm not happy uh, to get the call, but I'm happy to serve for selfish reasons because it's a reminder for me. I mean, in the last two months, there has been at least four or five burials that we've been involved with in this community alone. And look, man, that stuff shakes me. I mean, I go home really, I mean, that's it. I'm, that's, that's how it ends. So what am I doing with my life every time? So I'm, I, I don't like when people, I'm not saying that, but I, I welcome the opportunity to be reminded all the time. You know, that this is, especially Roxana Aunty, that was a, you know, a big, for some reason, that was like a big deal. Because there were some logistical issues, so I was also stressing out about that. But I remember I traveled right after that, and my whole trip, I'm just like, man, that's, that's how I'm going to end up. That's I'm gonna be like that, and every day I pray Janaza prayer before I sleep for anyone who has died who has not been prayed over, and in the last Takbirah I imagine that I'm gonna be in the grave, so I ask Allah please help me on that day because that's all that matters. You can pray in the ritual, yeah, Salatul ghaib. every day before I sleep just you know it takes what less than a minute. But it gets, you, it gets me in this habit to remind myself that really that, and because I've done it so many times, that's I'm going to be shrouded, and I'm going to be, you know, Riel is going to put me down. You know, and... And, and, and is going to be like, who's going to give the khutbah now? You know, and... Right? And then, and that's it. So you guys got to pray for me. And I'll pray for you, inshallah. No, so we, got to, we have to advance our understanding of death that it's just another mode of living; that it's not the end. Yeah. It's a practice that, 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 that some of the ulama. No. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it. Because there are, every day somebody's dying somewhere, and I don't know if these people have been prayed over. So, praying over the deceased that have no one's prayed over, that's something that we owe them. So, this is a way of lifting the obligation that I pray every day anybody who has died from the Muslims that hasn't been, Allah forgive them, etc., etc., etc. Anything? I think we're done, right? Okay, Wallahu Alam.